Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 320. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 320 you're listening to. My guest today is Sam Sherbin. Sam is a multifaceted mixing engineer based out of New York. He studied under the late, great Bruce Swedean, as well as Manny Mariquin. He comes to us as a referral from our friend, former WCA guest Ryan Gilligan. So I'm very much looking forward to having a chat with him and sharing that with you. Sam Sherbin, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's revisit audio minimalism. There's two things I'm sure you've heard me mention a billion times. Number one, the minimalists. Two guys that have a podcast. They've got a couple shows on Netflix. They've got a new one that's out recently. So you've heard me talk about the minimalists and you've probably heard me mention a thousand times how I'm trying to clean up the studio. So here's the thing. It's a small room I'm in and I've got a lot of stuff in here. Got a lot of records, books, audio gear, hard drives, my whole mixing mastering setup here. There's like microphones on the periphery, orphan computers that show up. And over time, with having the bad habit of thinking, oh, well, there's no clients coming over. Sure, I can eat a bag of popcorn in here and let the popcorn spill all over the floor. That's okay. I'll vacuum it up later. Well, you know, two weeks later, the popcorn's still there. I've pulled a bunch of stuff off the shelves that I need and haven't put it back. There's, you know, records out. There's, I don't know, there's just crap everywhere. And I've had it. I've really had it. Maybe it's a little bit of COVID stir craziness mixed with with uh, just a a desire to to change it up a bit. Here in the Bay Area, we have this place, and I'm sure I've mentioned this on the the show before. There's this great place in Berkeley called Urban Ore. Their whole business model is you drop off your crap to them and they'll resell it. And obviously they'll get paid for it. You won't get paid for it, but you'll drop it off and you'll feel like, oh, I got rid of all that crap. And they'll resell it. They sell everything from old toilets to electronics, to tools, to office furniture, old doors, tons of stuff. It's a fun place to go visit. It's a ginormous warehouse and it's fun to go find stuff in there, which is a problem because I like to go there and then I bring crap home with me and it's not good. So I filled the car with a bunch of stuff and I dropped it off today. And if you've ever had long hair and you get tired of it, it felt like getting a haircut. felt like, oh my God, I got rid of all that stuff. I still have a lot of stuff that I got to get rid of. As time goes along and I get older and deeper into my audio practice, I'm starting to wonder about recording itself. I mean, not that I'll ever stop recording, but how much gear do I really need? I really am mixing and mastering. It's rare that I record, and obviously COVID plays a factor in that, but it really is pretty rare. So I'm starting to second guess a lot of stuff. So I'm just trying this new thing where if, you know, I want to get rid of something, I'll either put it in the back of the car or I'll hide it in the closet. If in two weeks to a month, I haven't thought about it, and then I come across it, I'm like, oh that thing. I got to get rid of that. The whole thing is I'm trying to get to this minimal setup where I don't have a lot of garbage around me. It's hard. I know you all know how hard it is, especially if you've been collecting gear for a long time. I bet a lot of you out there have a lot of uh, outboard gear you're staring at that you're not using or haven't used because you've been mixing in the box. Those of you that are using that gear, obviously use it if it's making you money and you're enjoying it. But man, there's some stuff here I could continue to purge and do without. I encourage you to check out The Minimalist great concept. It's not for everybody. I've been enjoying them for years. And every time I uh, listen to one of their podcasts or I watch one of their shows, I'm like, got to get rid of some of that extra crap. Because I don't know about you, my parents are older in their 80s and their 90s, and they have so much stuff. Every time I go to their house, I'm just stunned at how much crap they have. And I think one of these days they are going to pass away and it's going to be me and my siblings going through all that crap and trying to figure out what we keep and what we don't. And it's going to be really tough. I'm definitely going to keep my crap quota to a minimum. It's a constant reevaluation of what is needed. What am I just hanging on to for ridiculous sentimental reasons? It's like you can't take this stuff with you when you die. And a lot of this stuff I'm not using. 
So I got to purge it. I got to get rid of it. The quandary I always have is I'll come across something that I don't think is going to really fetch any value. You know, once you list it and ship it and there's fees and all that, some of this stuff I'm like, I'm either going to give this to a friend or I'm going to give it to the Urban Ore place here uh, in Berkeley. And if you don't have a place like that where you live, I don't know how it is outside of the United States, but in the United States, there's generally a goodwill. You can uh, drop stuff off there if you're having a hard time finding a home for something. I would prefer to have more money in the bank and less junk in my life and have a a room free and clear of stuff I don't need and only have the stuff that brings me value that that actually serves the needs that I have as an audio professional. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Sam Sherbin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You come to us as a referral from our mutual friend and former WCA guest, Ryan Gilligan. Incredible guy. Yeah, so we got to thank Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. (laughs) So you're talking to us from New York? Yep, I'm in, in New York right now keeping safe during these COVID times. Yeah. It looks like a ghost town every time they show it on the news. Yeah. It's, you got to just take your precautions and, and move carefully and be safe. Yeah. Well, let's get into your story. Let's move on to that. Where did you grow up originally? I grew up in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn. I kind of been all over the place in terms of New York state. I lived in upstate New York for around 10 years. So I've been all around. So I'm pretty thankful to be in New York and seeing the various aspects of New York, from the city to the upstate country life, basically. And growing up, did music play a strong part of your life in terms of school band or anything like that? 
Yeah, I actually started out on the violin because I was super obsessed with Albert Einstein. And once I figured out that he was a violinist, I was like, well, if I want to be like him, I might as well imitate that he played violin. So I played violin and carried it back and forth. And it was quite difficult to play because hand dexterity and it's not an easy instrument to get well. So I changed from that to the flute and then I decided that I wanted to be in music in a different form. But growing up, it was a huge part of my life. I basically have a multicultural background. My father's Russian and my mother is Jamaican. So the music around the house was pretty insane. From the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Lauryn Hill to the Temptations, it was just a plethora of music. And me being from completely different cultures, I gravitated a lot towards music because Jamaicans, obviously with Bob Marley and, and reggae music, that's a huge part of the culture. Yeah. It was just incredible, to be honest, to have that kind of dichotomy exist. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a sister. Does she play an instrument or did she play an instrument? Yeah, she she was a singer. She performed in choir for uh, Nisma. She was very into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were all kind of musical in a sense that we did practice music and perform to a degree. I don't know how it was in, in your house, but in my house with two older brothers and an older sister, I was exposed to the music they were listening to at the time. Was that the case for you in terms of her tastes and how it affected you? Yeah, she had really great music taste. Kind of along with my mom, her music taste doesn't really develop in a sense of she'll play the same 20 songs over and over to this day. I'm like, Pedro, you have to update your playlist. <laughs> no, no, no. I like these these early 2000, 1990 songs. And she'll repeatedly play the same thing over and over, but there'll be great ballads, great R&B records, things like that. So I didn't blame her. I'm like, hey, you know, those are really cool 20 songs that you keep playing for the past 10 years. <laughs> so I can't complain about that. When did the act of recording or the art of recording, I should say, When did that enter your life? It entered my life pretty early. I was 11 years old and I don't don't know if people remember this app, but there was an app called Sound Recorder on Windows, which was like a mono, it's just record, play, rewind, and it had, I think, three effects on it. So me and my friends used to record on there. He used to just beatbox, he used to rap or sing or do whatever. And once I heard that I could play it back and hear my own voice, I was obsessed from that point. Then I was like, I want to do this. Whatever this is, this is what I want to do pretty early. I think a lot of people, once they get into like recorded sound and hearing themselves back, it's like a life-changing epiphany moment. Why do you think that is? What is it about that moment of clarity of, of realizing, oh, this is possible? What is it do you think that draws people like you and me in? I think it's the possibilities of what, what it could be past the point of recording because there was the recording part but then there was also the part where I could pitch my voice down or there was a point where I could throw an effect on there and it was a very rudimentary effect but it almost made you execute your ideas in a quicker fashion and the fact that we could perform and then listen to it and then evaluate what we're hearing I think also is an amazing art the art of actively listening to yourself as a musician or a producer or a singer. I think once you get hooked onto that, then it just opens up the doors for the bigger possibilities. Now, once you had that epiphany, the decisions that followed in your life, were they geared towards getting into recording? Yeah, I was obsessed. Like I remember when I was 15, I asked my dad for a Zoom recorder, like an eight track digital Zoom recorder. I was like, this is what I want and this is what I need. And it was like $500. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's get it. My parents didn't have any reservations when it came to me being creative because before the music bug hit, I was also a painter. So I painted a lot and I was in, I guess, a a gifted program for painters and artists. So I was doing simultaneous art ventures. And once I figured out that music was more my passion, I just leaned more into that. Now, there's something in your bio that really caught my attention, and I think you know what I'm going to ask about. I can't pronounce it very well, so you're going to have to help me here. Is it is it a synesth- synesthesia? My my manager put put that in. He's he's interested in it because my manager, his name is Max Cho, and he manages a producer named Nick Lee, and a trombone player and R&B singer named Jeffrey Miller, and he said all of you guys happen to have synesthesia, and 
I don't understand what that is. And I'm like, well, when we hear music, we see colors and we kind of like hear music in a colorful way. And when I talk to Jeffrey, if we do mixed notes, I'm like, hey, the song's a little silver. Maybe we should make it more gray. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, I don't really think too much about it until some artists had different ways of explaining music. And I was seemingly working in the same way. So yeah, I think it's something cool, but I don't think it's something rare. When did you discover that you had this? And did people, did they look at you like, are you crazy? What are you saying? I didn't really tell people. I mean, I didn't, I just think that people explore music differently. So I was just keeping to myself. And as a painter, those colors and music would always be coincided. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone. So no one really knew, but I was always into like cinematography and it just made sense why colors was a very important thing in terms of expression. So a person with synesthesia, it's a condition in which the normally separate senses are not separate. Sight may mingle with sound, taste with touch, etc. The senses are crosswired. For example, when a digit color synesthet sees or just thinks of a number, the number appears with a color film over it. Does that definition from medicine.net, believe it or not, does that make sense to you or does that describe it accurately? I know there's different ones. I only have one. I don't have like, when I see a number, I don't see a color. Some people have, they taste something and they see a shape. I don't have that. I don't know. It's just, they're very much intertwined, like pitches and, and notes and drums for me, depending on pitch, maybe red. So like I'm hyper obsessed with color coding properly on Pro Tools because you could slide the saturation knob and then make it darker, a little bit lighter and try to get it somewhere close to where it makes sense. But I don't know if it's an advantage. It could be an, an annoyance sometimes to be that distracted. Also with the mixing it could be more annoying because you could focus on different parts of the song to keyboard players a little off or guitar players, string, whatever. I don't know. I mean, I know Bruce had synesthesia too. So Quincy has it. I don't think it's rare amongst artistic types to have some form of it or have mm -hmm. a relationship with it. And we're talking about Bruce Sweetie and we'll get to that at some point here. Moving forward, what was the series of decisions in your life that led up to meeting with Bruce. Let's talk about the time frame and let's talk about what led up to that moment. Well, the story is really funny because before there were any master classes, right? There was no mix at the masters. There was no pyramids. There was nothing. So one day I was Googling his name and I saw his website came up and I'm like, oh my God, you can actually contact him. So he had this master class that he was starting to do 10 years ago. This is in 2010. And I was in college enrolled in music and I saw his website and he had this master class in Florida where he had this studio and Bernie Grunman was going to be the guest. But there was a caveat. The caveat was he was only going to pick 10 people in the world to learn from him. And I said to myself, I'm not going to get in. I might as well fill out the form. I filled out the form, hit submit and didn't look at my email for like weeks on end. And for some reason, I checked my email and his assistant wrote me and said, hey, Sam, Bruce really likes your music. You're one of the 10. Let's talk about what the next steps are. And his assistant at the time, Ramsey's mission, gave me his number and I called him frantically. I'm like, oh my God, is this real? He's like, yes, you got picked and you had to come to Florida by the end of the month. But I believe it was like five or $6,000 and I'm like a broke college kid and I have no money. And I'm trying to convince my mom and my sister that this is real. They're like, oh my God, what if it's a scam? Like, what if we send the money and he just runs away? Like, is he who he is? So we got on the phone with Bruce and my sister was like, I want his contact information. And they were like, oh, he's not a person. He's an enterprise. It was like super serious. And I did everything I could. I fundraised. I did mixes for like super cheap. I did anything I could to get enough money to go. And I finally made enough money to go. And I was super excited and highly nervous because that was like everything I've learned up to that point was basically going to be inspected by, I believe to be, if not the greatest music engineer ever. So you were, you were a college student at that time. Were you in a recording program? Yeah, I was in a recording program and it was very, very basic. They only had MIDI stations and only two or three microphones. I think they had a 003. They were kind of underfunded. I couldn't afford full sale and 
there's an Institute of Audio Research, which another thing I couldn't afford. So I was like, I don't know. Let me go to community college and go to a cheaper school for the music so I could pay for the program. So I had to tell all my teachers, I'm like, hey, I got into this really rare masterclass. I need a week off. And a week off when you just pretty much started your semester is like, you will basically lose your semester. You can't leave for a week. You could leave for a few days, but in total, you cannot leave for a week. So I needed to write papers to all my teachers, faculties, and told them I need to leave. So they graciously let me go. And they said, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You have to go, but know that your work is due throughout those seven days that you're gone. So like, I still had to do homework on top of that and like submit it over email. You write all the teachers, they see the value in it for you and, and they approve it and, and you go. Yeah. Tell me about that week. Oh my God. So we, we landed and I convened with the other nine people that were there and they're all over the world. People from Brazil, people from the United States, people from just all over. So basically we stayed at a hotel and then Ramsey's would pick us up in a van and we would drive to Bruce's house every day. So we'll go to Bruce's house every day and behind his house, he had this massive warehouse that was custom made for him. And the second you open the door, you see every record, like Thriller, Off the Wall. There's a photo of him hanging out with Ray Charles. There's a photo of him with Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson having dinner. There's just CDs all over the place, platinum records. It's literally the most insane thing. And Bruce's whole thing was teaching us critical listening. So I'm thinking I'm going to go there and I'm going to see like walls of gear. Like I'm going to see gear from the ceiling to the floor. And that was not the case. He had his Harrison console. He had, he's very famous for his tube traps. Art Knoxon of Acoustic Science Corp was there. And for three days, we were talking about how to listen, psychoacoustics, recording, comb filtering. Art was talking about physics of sound for three days. And I said, I can't believe I left school to go back into school. Like we're talking about physics and sound for three days straight before we talk about anything recording or mixing. And then from there, Bruce told us his life story, working with the great Bill Putnam, learning reverb for the first time, like hearing a guy talk about his musical history and learning reverb and miking techniques and the importance of learning how to read music is incredible. The only person like that maybe would be like an Al Schmidt who's seen a time and an era where there was very little tools and the musicality that came from those musicians are just insane. He, he told the stories of Oscar Peterson recording three albums in one night, like guys who are just like one take masters throughout his entire career. Then we recorded with him. So he had this drum platform that we had to like take out of his garage and assemble together as a group. And that was the original drum platform that he used for Billie Jean. He used a lot of different techniques. He had a drum platform so he could decouple the low frequencies from the mics on the drums. So Michael would stand on top of that, put two traps around him, and then he would sing from memory. There would be no sheet music. That was another thing I learned from Bruce. Michael always memorized everything and did vocal lessons two hours before he came to the studio. So he was always prepared to work. And then we had, he's like, what do you guys want to listen to? And we decided to listen to Thriller on Halloween with Bernie Grunman. And Bernie came <laughs> with the, the with the mix that he got from Bruce and then the master. So we played Thriller from pre-master to final master. It was just something that rarely happens to any few people that they could hear that with the people that actually made the record. And I can't tell you how blessed I am. That experience had an impact on you, it sounds like. Yeah, because he was very giving with his knowledge and he also was very supportive. He was like, Sam, you're really, really good and definitely have to continue it. He was very, very supportive. And ironically, I was the youngest person there. So people were just excited. They were like, hey, you're kind of the luckiest person here because everyone there was probably in their late 30s and 40s. And I was like 19, 20 at the time. I'm thankful that he picked me because his assistant saying they were shredding around two or 3,000 applications every month or something crazy like that. They were just going through everybody like, this is not good enough. So I was thankful, really thankful. So what I'm curious about is you said that his assistant said, Bruce really likes your music. So what is it you were submitting? You weren't submitting client work. You were submitting, you were submitting my own work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I made music on the side and I said, listen, this is what I got. Like, this is my recordings. This is me, my music just music I made for myself. And he called it really unique. And it was kind of like an R&B hip hop thing. 
and I was kind of working on it and I just decided to submit it because I don't know how many slots he has for like submissions of music, maybe two. And that was it. He said, your music was just really, really different than everyone else's that he heard. And that was interesting to me because I just kind of threw it in there. Like, I don't know. This is what I have. (laughs) You spent a week with him. Obviously, it changed your perspective, but did it change your plans for the future? Yeah, it it just made it more solid that this is what I'm going to be doing and how am I going to execute on being a mixing engineer during this time because his time was a different time and I was trying to apply what he did during his time and then the knowledge and trying to do it in my own way because he had analog equipment and there was fewer people in the field. I think now there's like hundreds of thousands of people in our field. So it's highly competitive and there's a lot of options out there. So I just decided to go the old school route. I'm just going to hang out at the studio. And one of the guys there, his name is Kenevin. He had his own studio. So he was in Pennsylvania. So I went with him and learned about more about analog recording and mixing techniques. Because he came from the Bruce workshop, he had a lot of the same stuff. LA-2As and ATR-102 tape machines. Like any, anything I can get my hands on to like build up my skill set, that's what I was doing. So it was just like, let me just go straight to a studio and just apply what I know and and to learn. And did Bruce give you advice on career, on managing a career? Yeah. The best advice he ever gave me and and especially everyone else, you got to have your own sonic personality, he said. He said, everyone wants to sound like each other. And he said that the virtue of what you guys are doing now is that you have the ability to really make your own statement. He called it like these musical statements. And when you hear records that he's done or people that you admire, no one really sounds like Chad Blake. And that's the greatest thing about Chad. There's no second rate Chad Blake out there because <laughs> Chad is so great at what he does. Uh, there's no second rate Tom Elmhurst. Like these guys have a way of hearing records and they have a way and a sensibility that's unique to them. So mm-hmm. I just leaned heavy into that finding what I like, what I didn't like, what I liked about records, what I like to make records sound like. And yeah, it takes a lot of confidence, but I think that's a good building tool. Did you go back and finish college? No, I dropped out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry I dropped out. I had some professors literally say like, I, I wouldn't advise you, but it's like, hey, you got something going. Maybe you should explore that because school is always going to stay. But one of my professors, my international relations professor, could like switch my major. Because there was no more, there was no more music to do. I was like, well, I can just write essays all day. So let me be an international relations political science major. <laughs> but he was an incredible teacher because he would have me play mixes off my iPad. So he was very, very encouraging with the music. Even though I was doing history and political science, he was like, hey, you should really venture out because no matter what you do, you can always come back to school. But I think what you're doing is a little bit more urgent. What happened? Where did you go? What did you do? I just went out there working with Kenevin. I went to a studio in the East Village where Chris Cody was downstairs in the basement. And also there was a, another mixer, Stuart White, who now works for Beyonce. And they were all downstairs. And that room had a lot of history. The Strokes did their first record. So I assisted on this record, this Australian artist named Mossy, for two years. And we had a lot of great time recording and working. And and it was just cool because it was like I was in the studio all day. And when we had drum sessions, I would go to there. We went to Avatar. David Kahn was producing part of the record as well. And Roy Hendrickson was recording. And I'm like, what's going on? And that's when I saw like, it was probably the smoothest, easygoing session ever. Assistants put up the mics. And then I went to Avatar and I was in the live room and I was like clapping and it was like a little bit airy and then a little bit dead. And I'm like, this room is like a work of art. This live room is literally insane. Microphone placement and EQing with the mics. And this is when you see like high level professionals work. They work so fast and efficiently. And before you know it, the record is done. You're like, wow, that was quick. Were you being paid or were you interning? I was being paid. I've been paying a, a decent amount, nothing crazy. I was scrimping and saving and there was a 99 cents pizza place right next door. So like I was always going there cause I was like, hey, I'll save some money. Never got sick of it. And then I was also mixing records on the side. So also I, I can get access to the studio late night. When the band was gone, I would get the keys and I could lock up and I could record people and I could mix records. That took a while for me to get that privilege. But once I got it, I was calling up all my friends, all my NYC, music friends, like, come over. I got the studio for two hours. Let's, let's knock this record out. It was fun. It was fun. 
when you leave a seminar like you you did with Bruce, its effect carries for some time. I don't know if it's the same for you, but then it starts to fade a little bit and you start to see other ways of looking at things. Because for a while there, you're in the mindset of Bruce, whereas like, you know, I did the Chad Blake mix with the Masters thing. So for quite some time after that, I was just like, what would Chad do? Kind of a thing. Did that in fact fade a little bit? And did you start to come more into your own? Yeah, I came into my own because when I learned from Bruce, I'm like, oh, I need a 610 because he has a 610 and I need Oratones because he has it. Because I, I figured if I'm going to emulate him, at least I, I need to understand why with my own ears, why he's doing these things after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. Why is he mix? Why is he use Oratones? Oh, that's why he's using it. Why is he using a 610? Why is he placing the mic like this? Why is he using the low cut like this? It's, it's, you start to reevaluate what they're doing and it's awesome that you did go to Chad Blake. During that time when I was assisting, I went to France and I did the Manny Marikeen mix of the Masters in 2013. And that was like a level up because Manny's one of my favorite mixers and he makes a lot of records that I loved since I was a kid. And I was like, okay, well, he's doing it at a high level right now and try to see what he's doing and what he's bringing to the table now. So I tried to like merge my own sensibility and what they're doing. What I want to get clarity on is where you're at today. Are you surviving in the world of audio or do you have a side gig? Tell me about your world today. What's, what is it made up of? Well, my, my world is just made up of mixing and thank God it's going a little bit better. I think during the COVID time last year, it hit really, really hard. And we do live in a COVID-friendly work, but it's not COVID-proof. Like if artists can't record and if they can't perform on tour, they're going to be less people trying to hire, right? So during that time, I decided to kind of pivot and make a podcast. So me and my manager decided to make a podcast called In The Zone and talking about engineering and just the art of what we do, but more of the human side, more of the storytelling side. So that was a unique thing. I had a lot of great mixers, Stuart White and Eric Madrid, who worked on Khalid and Joey Reyes, who works on Run The Jewels. Basically, I have this IG group of 30 mixers and probably some of the greatest mixers of right now, Alex Tumay is in the group, Joey Reyes, a lot of great mixers in the group. And I just threw these people in the group. Some of them didn't even know each other. I'm like, this could backfire so bad. And everyone's like talking with each other and writing each other. And then it became an invaluable sense of knowledge. And then my manager said, well, why don't we do a podcast and give some of that knowledge to other people who aren't lucky to be in that group? that Instagram group of all those engineers, they'll talk about every technique under the sun, talk about what they're doing, what plugins they like. They'll help other people troubleshoot. It's just a very unique group that basically became itself after a while. But I think it started to work because of COVID. A lot of guys were just home and they probably weren't sure what to do. So I was like, hey. <laughs> so you're, you're freelance mixing now, is that true? Yeah, I've been freelancing mixing since... I want to say 2014, 2015. Okay. Are you doing that from home at all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have a rig at home. I have uh, Oceanway Pro 2As. I have tube chaps. Uh, I have my setup, my rig, and um, and uh, sorry, the dog's barking. <laughs> yeah. Once I saw like the studio scene in New York was definitely getting a little bit more boggled down where there's studios literally shutting down left and right. When I was assisting, I was like, I need to set up my home space to be as good as any of these studios, as best as I could. Mm-hmm. I had Barefoots at the time, Barefoot MM27s in an apartment in Brooklyn. Like that's just ridiculous. But I kind of saw it coming. You know, I saw that you didn't need a lot of gear to make a really good mix. So you didn't need a lot of gear to even do a pretty good recording. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So you set up your own rig at home, and that's been working well. You've mentioned your manager numerous times. How did that come about? Do you think it was necessary to get a manager? Yeah, I think for people that need to, I guess, level up and have a person that can help see a different path. I met Max through a client of mine, Nick, this great producer, Nick Lee, and they were working together and me and Max were developing another idea, this end of zone thing. I've been working on it for a while and he's an NYU film student. So he helped me develop a film version of my podcast a year before we did the podcast. And we're just talking on and off about working on stuff. And then I guess during the pandemic, we're like, hey, let's just work together. And and it's phenomenal. Someone that could help with invoicing, someone that could help with rechecking emails, someone that keeps on task of stuff like, hey, how many artists have we hit up? How many mixes have you completed? Things like that. It's just, it streamlines the process for me because it, it became hectic. And then also like I needed some clarity and, and someone to help level up with. Yeah. And I guess that your arrangement is, is he operates off of a percentage of, yeah, of what yeah, you make. Commission. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And, and also gets you gigs. Is that? Yeah. He definitely throws my name in the hat. The thing about managers, I think some people are like, well, your manager is not supposed to get you work, but if your manager is taking a cut, he could at least intro you to people or at least try to see ways where you could potentially get more work. That doesn't mean they're going to give you more work, but I think a lot of managers are super social, then they can have more meetings and do more emails and get your name out there. It definitely does help. And he has introed me to a lot of artists and producers and things like that. It's cool like that, but do I bank on it? No, I, I bank on what I do in my work to get me work. But if he comes with a suggestion of an artist that he likes, he'll run it by me and we'll listen to the music together and say, what can we do with this artist? How can we work together? So it's definitely, vital and I, I couldn't see working without it. I had a previous manager before, but that didn't really work out. I have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. He's really, really engaged on a magnitude of ideas. And yeah, we work really hard together. We have scheduled time and then we just go to work as we say. So are you focusing most of your energy into mixing these days or are you involved in production and recording? It's mainly mixing for a long time, a little bit of production. If the artist needs it, I'll kind of do production moves in the mix. I think if you have a good relationship with the artist, see how it goes and set up the relationship with a reign of creativity, if need be. But if not, then mix what they have and see what they need and hopefully you do a really good job. How do you charge? By the song or by the hour or what's the what's your method? It's by the song. I don't know anyone who mixes by the hour. <laughs> I, I, know, I know people record by the hour, but I don't know people mix by the hour. Yeah, you just set it up and you let people know what the rate is and, and, and that's it. And if, if it needs to be adjusted, if the music is good and if some kind of deal could be struck where both parties are happy, that's where my manager comes in and says, hey, we could adjust it. The other thing is the money thing. It's like, I really don't like talking about money with an artist, even though when I was freelancing, I had to do it. And it's just touchy for me because it's like, you want to talk about creativity and possibilities and be excited about music. And then all of a sudden you're having this big money talk. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, he could have the money talk and then I could be creative and then everything is dealt with. So you're staying on the creative side. And it helps for the artist because the artist is now just focused on 
their music and, and what we could do together creatively. So you're living in an expensive city. Is it difficult to survive on what you're doing with mixing? I don't think it's impossible. I think with good budgeting, I'm planning out a move to LA. So I think I'm going from one expensive city to the next. And just being in New York is really expensive, but you kind of learn how to cope and, and make things work. I think in other cities, essentially, you can keep your overhead low and you can keep your expenses a little bit higher and then you could take more home. But I think somewhere in New York, it's just it's expensive. But I think if you're going to be in any of these hotspot areas, know that you're going to be spending a lot of money for just location. And when do you plan on doing the move to LA? I've been planning it for a while, but with COVID, is I'm just keeping my expenses low and savings keep working the savings and keep monitoring the situation in LA because I know it's epicenter now for COVID. So that's scary. So it kind of makes it a little bit more unpredictable, but the plan is still the plan. I hope you've moved past 99 cent pizzas. Yeah, definitely move past that. <laughs> 99 cent pizzas. I mean, yeah, when you're young and you're, and you're in a business where it's like a meritocracy, you have to just work really hard and, and hopefully you get more opportunities. You're not going to be paid much if any. People say that all the time. And one thing I love about your podcast is it's realistic to people who are working day to day and people aren't millionaires. So budgeting is really important. Getting a good accountant is really important for taxes. Being very thorough about your business because you are running your business and you are your business. So it's just a matter of being cognizant of all those things. I remember Ed Cherney said that. He was like, just always make sure that your taxes are paid and everything is good because that's the last thing you want to deal with. <laughs> yeah, the late, great Ed Cherney. What about health and work-life balance? Are you handling that okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working a little bit better, trying to take Sundays off, trying to give myself a space where I do meditation. I've been meditating since seven. My papa who passed away introduced us to meditation. So I'm like, why am I sitting down and breathing and focusing. I, I didn't get it, but the older I got, I understood why he had us do that. It was like a, an incredible gift to have nowadays. It's like two guests in a row, you and Michael Brower with the meditation. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, my father, he was into meditating. He was into reading books, historian, really great, brilliant guy and father. And he just had us learn it really early. And I just never understood it. But the older I got, the more it became a thing. Like people are using apps for meditation and things like that. Well, I'm like, I meditated to nothing for like 20 minutes for years and years and years. Mental health is, it's not spoken about in our field because we deal with so much stress. We deal with a lot of different things and our job is more about people than it is about technical when you think about it. Like, yeah, we're technically, and we're, we're being musical for the time that we're being musical, but at the end of the day, we're still dealing with clients who are human, people that are human, musicians who are human, everyone is human. So you have to make sure that you take time for yourself such that your creativity doesn't get hurt because people burn out in this business because they want to be in the studio 16, 18 hours a day not sleeping, not taking care of themselves. And I'm a proponent now of like at least taking a little bit of time and slowing down. But when I was younger, I was just hungry, just like everybody else. They want a chance to succeed. And you just felt like the longer you're in the studio, the better. It didn't matter when you got home. Yeah. Whether it was productive time or not. As long as you're in the studio, hey, something can happen. <laughs> you know, I remember leaving the studio, I think at two or three in the morning and Russell Avado was booking the room next to us. He had just left the studio at three in the morning. When I was leaving, that's the first time I've ever seen a guy because I saw his racks of gear like almost blocking our walkway for like a month and a half. <laughs> what is your financial advice to those out there listening to maintain a decent quality of life and still stay in the game? I'm not a financial advisor, by the way. I just have to make that clear. <laughs> um, I just think it's about being lean and mean and figuring out what you need things I would do is write plugins that I wanted to get, demo them and waited for the big sale and just bought all of them one shot. You don't need a lot of great gear to do a lot of good work. I think people think that they need a lot of things and obviously it's up to one's own to figure out what they need and, and what they want to work on. But if you're constantly buying needless plugins or needless outboard gear, it's harder to focus on retirement. Because that was the other thing I was thinking. I was like, well, I'm 30 now. Who's looking out for me 40 years down the line? No one. 
So how do I figure that out and always put portion of your savings into an account and save as much as you can and figure out what you could do and do you need that $300, $400 plugin or will that $400 suit you better 20 years from now? Just It just depends because it's all about knowing what you need and then negating what you want because there's a lot of wants. But if you're generating money with what your setup is, until you get to a point where you're dealing with higher level clients and they need more from you, then you start to figure out, I need to level up with my clients. You can't put the cart in front of the horse. Like you got to understand that if you're at a certain level, guys that need gear and things like that, they have a high expectation or clients have high expectations and they charge a lot. So people need to see two and two like, Hey, you know, this guy spends a lot of money on the gear. He has an SSL console. He charges X amount for a mix, but he has overhead. I have overhead. So you factoring all those things, but then also factoring like, what could you get away with as long as you can? And then once you level up, you kind of naturally progress. What drives your decision to buy a piece of gear? Musicality. <laughs> you know, like the second you use an EQ or a compressor or something, and I'm working on a mix and I'm like, this makes this feel more musical. I'm going to get it. Because I'm always searching for depth and width and especially being in a box, Chad Blake was the reason. I used to have like API 2500, 5500 and all this gear. And I told myself, this guy's mixing records this good in the box. I literally have no excuse. And there was another thing I did. I pared down my rig. So I got rid of all my gear and a Crane Song head, 1073, got rid of all that stuff. And literally have a laptop, a dangerous source, Clarity M and my set of speakers. And that's it people are shocked that my setup is that simple. Because another thing is, I didn't want to have a crutch while mixing. I didn't want to feel like this thing was the thing that was making this mix work. I should be able to use any tool and be able to make it work. I was always scared, like going to another studio, I would go to different studios and they wouldn't have plugins, like they wouldn't have UAD, they wouldn't have waves, they wouldn't have this. And I'm like, I need to be able to work regardless of all that stuff and just get it done. So. I got rid of all that stuff and just reassessed how I worked and what was making it work. I love hearing you say this because it's like my mindset is headed in that direction. It's just paring down, getting rid of the clutter, getting rid of the stuff that I may need and focusing on the stuff that I'm using day to day. Yeah, you know, and a lot of my mixes I looked at and I'm like, wow, I'm just balancing it. I showed a client, I'm like, there's no inserts on anything. And that's one thing I learned from Bruce and from Manny. They're like, hey, you guys don't need as much as you, you think you need. Bruce had LA-2As and 1176s, but they were rarely turned on. He would literally blend the record with the balancing and Manny did the same thing. And I'm like, what's going on? This is a secret? It's not a secret. If you have a great song and you start bringing up faders, that song will start coming to life. Yeah. And then you say to yourself, what does this song need opposed to what I think it needs out of an ego? Because I think if you're mixing, you want to be like, hey, I want to wow the client, do a bunch of stuff. But I'm like, what does this song actually need? And what's going to make me connect with the record even more? And that's that changed my philosophy too, because I'm balancing more and I'm using a lot less. Oh, I don't need more top end on the hi-hat. I just need to bring it up more top end more low end, <laughs> bring up the kick drum a little bit more. I mean, it's simple. Balancing is something that people don't really talk about as much. They just talk about complex techniques and parallel compression and saturation and doing all these complicated things. And I'm like, did he try balancing first? <laughs> you know, it's like, did he try balancing first? Yeah. And then when you balance, and then another thing I heard, like the Brower thing, Brower is like when you balance and you hear the song, it gives you a chance to learn the song. So like you're already ready for the next part. You know where the outro is, you know where the sections are. And that's another thing like I learned from Manny is you can mix in sections and figuring out what to listen for and what to affect. So you, you're set up in an apartment. I'm kind of projecting my own thoughts on that. A New York apartment sounds quite small to me. Yeah, it is. What do you do to make that work for you? I have these tube traps. There's a few people that have it. Stuart White has an attack wall. Dave Kutch has an attack wall. I have like a quasi attack wall. I have less components, but I still have the back part. So that helps mitigate the room. And the attack wall basically takes the room out of the room. It absorbs those comb filterings and it kind of cleans up that low end. And the problem with small rooms, obviously, is like you don't have enough room for the bass to hit freely. But back at my place, I have a pretty long room. So I just made it work. But 
every time I was checking out apartments, I would do a clap test and see how much the reverb time was and what the material the walls were. So I can try to figure out by ear, is this a workable space or not? What about your neighbors interacting with your neighbors? Is that ever a problem? No one's ever said anything. <laughs> really? No one's ever said anything. No, I think you just kind of turn up when you need to turn up, you evaluate and you kind of mix. I mix quietly. I don't really mix that loud. But once I start getting the song done, I want to listen to it different levels and turn it up and feel it and then turn it down. I mean, my ocean waves are pretty loud. I love those monitors. And yeah, they, they sound pretty good low too. So I just, I, I just kind of work that out. The tube traps, those are great, but those are kind of on the expensive side, are they not? Yeah, they are. They're worth the investment. And, and the thing is, they're modular, so you can move them. You can take them with you. They will save you a lifetime because you can't EQ or know what you're listening to without getting a better monitoring environment. I know it sounds corny and everyone hates talking about it. And you're talking about room treatment because it's annoying and it's overwhelming. But there's only a few components. There's the room, there's your speakers, and then there's your ears. So you need to get those things in as line as much as you can. And people have different ears. People like different monitors. Yeah. That's another thing. If one guy doesn't like ATCs and one guy does, they're both right. Anything with gear, I think like, yes, it's expensive, but I just see it as it's a necessity. I try not to see it as a want or like something lusty. Like they don't even look really that pretty, but there's something that makes you feel like you're not guessing and not really in the game of guessing because that's kind of scary. It's it's nice though because you can take those with you. Yeah. You know? And it, you can adjust the height on them too. Yeah. It allows you to take that setup and put it in a different room in another location and really recreate your environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, where can people find out more about you? My website is samsherbin.com, S-H-E-R-B-I-N, at Sam Sherbin Music on Instagram. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Once you get into the website, there's a bunch of more socials linked into that. Well, we'll include links in the show notes for all of that. And I really appreciate your time today. It's great to meet you. And I find myself saying this quite often, but I'm sure at some point we'll meet in the future in person. Yes, that would be great. And I would love to hang out. Well, thank you, Sam. It's great to meet you and stay safe out there and take care. You too. Thank you. All right. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Sam Sherbin. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the amazing Chuck Smith there with his voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Stop by iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.